Freedom doesn't need more cheerleaders shouting partisan slogans. It needs thoughtful, principled disciples of liberty. Deep down, we all know that freedom and liberty matter. This is where we discuss why they matter. It's time to elevate the discussion. Welcome to the never-ending quest for clarity. This is Loving Liberty with Brian Hyde. Hey, welcome to the Loving Liberty program. I'm Brian Hyde. I'm glad you could join me. I'm going to start off with some really positive stuff. And I I, I do have some... Shall we say more serious news uh, to cover? But uh, we'll, we'll save that for a little bit later in the program. And I'll just tell you right up front so you can prepare yourself. You know, get a you know support animal if you need a support animal. Um, boy, the, the severe weather throughout uh, parts of the U.S., particularly, though, the, the farm belt and the Midwest. I mean, last night, uh, what was it? Jefferson City, Missouri, was hit with a, an incredibly destructive tornado. And like, I don't want to get into the really heavy stuff here now, but um, there's been lots of flooding from the snow melt. And you know about, of course, the the terrible flooding taking pr- place uh, earlier this year in Nebraska. Uh, bottom line, it's going to be tough for a lot of farmers to even plant their fields, let alone harvest a crop if they're able to plant one at all. So I'm going to ask you to think ahead. What might that mean for food prices? And, and more importantly, what can you and I do about it? Because believe it or not, we do have some options. Also on tap, we'll be uh, talking about why Chick-fil-A keeps on succeeding. Had a little business to take care of in town yesterday. Had to uh, go get my oil changed. And um, because of that, because it, it can be kind of a time-consuming pursuit, uh, I, I thought, you know, I'll, I'll just grab some lunch on my way into the uh, studio. And I wanted to stop at Chick-fil-A. There was one like a block and a half away from the radio studio. But... The line was around the building, and I thought, nah, I don't know if I have time. But there's a reason why, under any other circumstances, if I wasn't under any other circumstances, if I wasn't under time pressure and up against a very hard deadline of you have to be ready to roll at this time, that's where I would have gone. And and, uh, we'll talk a little bit about why that is. I'm willing to suffer a little bit for Chick-fil-A. Of course, they're catching a little bit of uh, flack Some people call it hate chicken, but the way they treat their customers is anything but hateful. We'll talk about the secret to their success. Um, In a similar note, what is the American dream? For that matter, if you were to ask people what the American dream is, I wonder what kind of answers you would get. Does it still exist? Again, depends on who you ask and and, uh, likely what they're going through at that time. We'll talk about... uh, the question of whether we're drowning in stuff that we don't need. This one strikes home to me because I went to look for something in my garage yesterday, and, and that's exactly how I felt. Like I was going under for the third time. So uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. What do you do when your civilization is collapsing? I'm not saying that ours is, but I'm saying that if, hypothetically, if you were in a situation where your civilization was maybe not even collapsing, but just say unraveling around the edges... What do you do? Butler Schaefer has some great thoughts. We'll share those with you. And uh, last but not least, French protesters are learning that Frederick Bastiat, their countryman from nearly 200 years ago. I guess it was 200 years ago. Actually, he was uh, he was walking the streets of France. Uh, Frederick Bastiat was right. Now, I have to confess, I love Frederick Bastiat uh, for, for this reason. 
he gave what I think is one of the most concise, well-thought-out, nonpartisan explanations of why we have governments and laws in the first place. And he did it in a very simple essay called The Law. For a lot of people who have become full-blown libertarians, that's the essay that more or less launched their journey. Because it thoughtfully examines why do we have government in the first place? And what purpose should it serve? So we'll, we'll talk a little bit about, uh, about Bastiat. In fact, let's start with that. Why not? Why not? The French uh, are having some problems, as, as you may have heard. In fact, the story here, this is from the Foundation for Economic Education, and Tabitha Alloway is the author. It starts with a quote from a protester in France. And the quote says, I see my hand and scream in horror as it hadn't completely come off. It was hanging from my wrist with the bones completely exposed. Yikes! A young man who's taken part in the Yellow Vests protest in France tells his story as he shows the Guardian cameraman the stump of his wrist, which is a testament to the violence of the clash between police and protesters. Another one who lost an eye during a protest says despondently, I no longer believe in freedom. Protests for economic justice and tax reforms first started in France in October of last year. But they continue to the present, sporting yellow vests. The participants have paraded in the streets, issuing a number of demands to French President Emmanuel Macron. Tensions have escalated and these protests have turned violent, with thousands now having been injured. Several have been killed. The yellow vests have become a symbol of anti-government protest, with the people of each of at least 26 countries, from Australia to Canada, appreciating it for their own purposes and reasons. Recently, in an act of solidarity with the protesters in France, a letter defending the yellow vests' legitimacy and desires was signed by a number of actors, writers, musicians, and filmmakers and published in the French paper Liberation. That was back on May 5th. And the letter ended with a quote from John Lennon. A dream is only a dream. A dream. I'm sorry. Let's try this again. A dream you dream alone is only a dream. A dream you dream together is reality. But what is justice? And this this is what Bastiat sought to answer. And this is this is where I would like to, to take your thoughts today. The yellow vests in France have risked and in some cases lost life and limb in pursuit of what they call, what's being called economic justice. But what does justice mean to them? In 1850, Frederick Bastiat's political theory was published in his work, The Law. In this work, the Frenchman vigorously challenged what he believed to be a perversion of the real meaning of law and justice, and he called on his countrymen to seek true liberty that leads to prosperity. Now, for the sake of brevity, you can distill his work down to just a few basic points in a question and answer format. I love how, how the author here, Tabitha Alloway, has done this. Think of this as like a, a primer on Frederick Bastiat's The Law. So if you were to ask, what is the purpose of law? The answer would be organized justice. Well, what is justice? Use of the collective force, meaning law, to secure persons, liberty, and property, maintaining each in its right. What is the perversion of law? Legal plunder, 
and any use of force for reasons beyond the purpose of securing persons, liberty, and property. What is legal plunder? That's the use of collective force or the law to take the property of some and then bestow it on others. What motivates legal plunder? Two very different things, Bastiat would say, naked greed and false philanthropy. What is the outcome of a government that persists in legal plunder? Well, it's a discontented populace ready for revolution. See, Bastiat argued that a government has but three choices regarding its relationship to personal property rights. Number one, the few plunder the many. Number two, everybody plunders everybody else. Or number three, nobody plunders anybody. We must make our choice among limited plunder, universal plunder, and no plunder. The law can follow only one of these three. So how do you know if your government is practicing legal plunder? Here's Bastiat's answer. See if the law takes from some person what belongs to them and gives it to other persons to whom it does not belong. See if the law benefits one citizen at the expense of another by doing what the citizen himself cannot do without committing a crime. Whoa, that's I mean, that's pretty straightforward. So let's pause for a moment here and ask, can you, do you ever see any examples of that around you? Tabitha says, in other words, it would be a crime for me to enter your house and demand your money at the point of a gun so I can share it with the poor. And there's nothing that magically makes this moral just because it's being done by a man wearing a badge. What's morally wrong for me is morally wrong for government. What is ethically wrong for an individual is ethically wrong for a group of individuals or government. This means that plunder is ethically and morally wrong, regardless of whether or not it's made legal under the auspicious but ambitious or ambiguous rationale, rather, that it's for human flourishing. Bastiat came to a very simple conclusion. Economic justice means that my property is safe from the looting hands of any individual or collective entity, including government. And his thinking here is that a person free from plunder is free to prosper. So we'll come back to this in just a few moments and we'll just we'll discuss which of the three choices, limited plunder, universal plunder or no plunder, are the yellow vests pursuing the answer may surprise you we'll take a quick break we'll be back this is loving liberty Welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. By the way, I would invite you, you know, when the urge hits, feel free to join in the conversation. We have conveniently made this possible by hooking up a telephone, or so they tell me. It's an odd thing. It's not flat at all. It's like this strangely shaped thing with uh, with these raised numbers on it. And you push it and you can hear things. Here, I'll, I'll demonstrate. Check, check this thing out. Look, I, I'll show you. Just uh, I have to actually pick something up. It's not going to let me dial. Okay. Anyway, strange thing. But uh, if, if you dial in this sequence of numbers, 801-331-8113, 
Magically, it will bring your voice into the Loving Liberty program, and you and I can discuss and hold forth as old friends often do. Just minus the uh, cigars and cognac and easy chairs. So we're talking about uh, what exactly are those French protesters learning that their countryman Frederick Bastiat taught nearly 200 years ago about government, why it exists, what's the purpose, what are the proper limits, what is right and what is wrong in terms of what we should be asking of government. And we find that there are three choices in how law can operate as it pertains to the idea of plunder, taking something from someone and then giving it to someone else. There's limited plunder, universal plunder, or no plunder. You can guess which one uh, your life, liberty, and property are safest under. The author of this piece on the Foundation for Economic Education website is Tabitha Alloway. And she asks the question, which of these three choices, limited plunder, universal plunder, or no plunder, are the yellow vests who are protesting in France pursuing? She says, we know it's not the absence of plunder. While protesting taxes, they've simultaneously demanded that government abolish homelessness, increase the minimum wage, provide free parking in the city center, give a minimum pension ex- uh, that's equal to $1,369 U.S. dollars, raise taxes on big companies, etc. So they're actually demanding that the government engage in more of that which caused their outrage in the first place, raising taxes in order to take care of everyone and comfortably accommodating everyone's desires. So even though they may be using the words economic justice, in reality, it's nothing more than equality through legal plunder. They don't want less government or less taxation. On the contrary, their demands for concessions and favors that must be supported through legal plunder have only increased. So their protest is over them having to help foot the national bill. But they still want that largesse to flow. As of April 2019, Macron has vowed nearly $19 billion in U.S. dollars to raise and cut and raises rather and tax cuts. But their demands are far from satisfied because the proper purpose of the law is not widely understood. Legislation often is, as Bastiat put it, the battlefield for the fantasies and greed of everyone. Ooh, that's a good phrase. Even where motives are entirely innocent and praiseworthy. Men seek the remedy to inequality by increasing and perpetuating the very thing that caused the evil in the first place, legal plunder. So the hard reality is the government can't deliver, nor should it try. Bastiat argued that for the government to organize charity, it would have to disorganize justice. He observed that the natural consequences of making the government responsible for everyone's well-being and happiness are a litany of complaints, discontent, and unrest tending to violence and revolution. Here's how Bastiat said it. Thus, there is not a grievance in the nation for which the government does not voluntarily make itself responsible. Is it surprising, then, that every failure increases the threat of another revolution in France? But if the government undertakes to control and to raise wages and cannot do it, if the government undertakes to care for all who may be in want and it cannot do it, If the government undertakes to support all unemployed workers and cannot do it. If the government cannot do all these things, what then? Is it not certain that after every government failure, which, alas, is more than probable, there will be an equally inevitable revolution? End quote. 
See, Bastiat dreamed that men would pers- would prosper and that inequalities would be minimized if they would pursue justice, meaning the security of person and property and liberty. A nation free from plunder is free to prosper. In order to realize true economic justice, the yellow vests this whole world over, and indeed every individual in every land who desires justice should pay heed to the timeless wisdom of Frederick Bastiat. Again, quoting Bastiat, And now that the legislators and do-gooders have so futilely inflicted so many systems upon society, may they finally end where they should have begun. May they reject all systems and try liberty, for liberty is an acknowledgement of faith in God and His works. To which Tabitha Alloway says, Well said, well said, sir. That's a dream worth dreaming together. Pretty good stuff. I shared yesterday afternoon on the uh, Wednesday afternoon edition of Loving Liberty uh, the story of the guy at, uh, now I can't remember the name of the college in uh, in Atlanta. It's a predominantly black school, but one uh, one of the speakers there, a billionaire, got up and said, I will pay off the student loan debt of all of the graduating class this year. This is to the tune of about $40 million in student loan debt. And, of course, people went nuts. That's a, I mean, that's huge. Can you imagine being a recent graduate and having that load taken off your shoulders? It's marvelous. And it's also a beautiful illustration of what private charity, voluntary charity, should look like, as opposed to coerced or forced charity, which is what our government does. And it does it through the mechanism of legal plunder. I just want to make really clear, because I don't want anybody to get the wrong idea. Uh, look, I, I enjoy Ayn Rand's books, but her attitude was pretty clearly, we'll take care of ourselves, you're on your own. And to a point, as far as keeping government out of the equation, I can agree with her, but then again, I would think that our, our best and noblest impulses, as Solzhenitsyn would put it, mean that we do have a duty to care for the needy, to care for the downtrodden. I would say it's our Christian duty, but it's, this isn't just limited to people of Christian faith. In fact, it may surprise you, but, uh, you know, one of, the, one of the world's great religions, which does a marvelous job of putting their money where their mouth is, is Islam. They, too, have a duty to take care of the poor, to care for the sick, to care for the elderly. And it might surprise you to realize that once upon a time, that was the norm in America, that it was communities and individuals. It was philanthropy and and it was charity, the real thing, voluntary charity that cared for the downtrodden. Today, we've outsourced most of that to various government agencies. And, And I'm not trying to disparage those who work within these agencies. I think there are a lot of folks who are a part of that that are sincerely trying to do the best they can. But would it be wrong to point out that uh, any any bureaucracy and and government, you know, is is bureaucracy writ large, always has a great deal of, of expensive overhead when it comes to administering that kind of charity. And the fact that it takes that money, not voluntarily. Well, now, Brian, you know, we pay our taxes voluntarily. No, we don't. We pay our taxes because we don't want the IRS coming after us and making us cold, hungry and homeless with a couple of clicks on a computer mouse. 
We don't want guys with guns and badges to come and dispossess us of our property or to, to garnish our wages or, or take things away from us or throw us in jail. Voluntary charity is a good thing. In my opinion, I think we would be a better nation and we would be better even down to the community level if we took that, that duty seriously and didn't outsource it to government. But you know how these things work, right? Somebody in government's willing to do it. Ah, well, we'll let them do it and we can worry about more important things. When we come back, let's talk about the American dream. Whether it still exists, what does it look like? How was it once defined? This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after these messages. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. My name is Brian Hyde. I'm your host. And I'd love to hear from you. 801-331-8113 is the number. Let's take a little time to talk about the American dream. When's the last time you actually sat down and thought about it? I mean, it's I'm not saying it should be dinner table conversation every single night, but when's the last time you really stopped and thought about what does it mean to live the American dream? I want to think that uh, that it's it's crossing my consciousness at least somewhat often, but uh, truth be told, the actual words "American Dream" probably didn't uh, didn't really register in my brain until I saw this wonderful article by James Jeffrey on intellectualtakeout.org. He points out in the 1999 film Fight Club, Tyler Durden addresses what he sees as the problem with the American Dream. He says, we've all been raised on television to believe that one day we'd all be millionaires and movie gods and rock stars, but we won't. And we're slowly learning that fact, and we're very, very pissed off. Now, perhaps if Durden and his gang of angst-ridden males, as well as the rest of us, had paid more attention to the historical origins of one of America's most famous expressions, we may not feel quite so aggrieved. James Jeffrey says the phrase American Dream was originally coined in the wake of the Great Depression by a historian by the name of James Truslow Adams when he wrote a book titled The Epic of America. By the way, he originally called it The American Dream, but his publisher said, ah, that title's not catchy enough. But listen to what he says here. Actually, listen to what Sarah Churchwell says about James Truslow Adams. She says, for Adams, the American Dream included but extended beyond economic opportunity. Interesting. It was about militating against privilege rather than promising that everyone could be rich. See, Adams was no socialist, and, and Churchill notes that he hoped capitalism could produce a more beneficent order with businessmen considering the good of society as they salvaged their post-depression livelihoods, discovering enlightened self-interest and paying better, kind of an earlier version of today's corporate social responsibility. Now, James Truslow Adams' ideas and writings about the American dream found a lot of favor in a nation trying to rebuild after economic catastrophe. 
His phrase took off during the 1930s when it was used to proselytize for the likes of state-subsidized education and national health care and public housing. Now, apparently, uh, James Jeffrey, as a Brit, says that uh, makes my heart swell. You maddening yet lovable American rogues once saw the light. <laughs> Nowadays, the phrase's original ideals seem long forgotten. Current invocations of the American dream focus almost exclusively on acquisition of better material prospects or landing a juicy advertising deal with your Instagram or YouTube account. By the way, for proof of this, I would encourage you think about the things that politicians tend to focus on when asked, how can you show that you have succeeded or that, you know, how would you measure your effectiveness in office? Almost always. It'll come back to, well, I brought home the money for this or I created this many jobs or I made it possible for this industry to come to our fine city, whatever. It's almost always in economic terms. Now, I'm not saying that's a bad thing, but. Sometimes it seems like that's the only metric by which we can measure how we are doing as a community, as a society, as a nation. Do you suppose we're leaving some things out that might also be important? I mean, it's, it's one thing to be very well off materially. But if you're impoverished culturally, spiritually or morally, seems like you might be missing out on some of the really, really great things in life. As James Jeffrey points out, the result has been a failing society where people focus on themselves and their advancement and ignore the struggles of others. Thus has the phrase American nightmare found its place in debates about what's gone wrong. Now, he says the collective amnesia about what the American dream originally meant is troubling for Americans and foreigners alike. It was the BBC's legendary America correspondent, Alistair Cook, who noted that where America goes, Britain usually follows. And he says, I see this whenever I return to the UK from the States, often in benign ways such as fashion, food and language trends. But he says, I also see more troubling aspects, enthrallment to the profit motive and the elevation of self-fulfillment above service to the greater good. Indeed, it seems no coincidence that increasing numbers of British voices are questioning the feasibility of keeping our National Health Service publicly funded. And of course, America isn't a trendsetter for the UK alone. But he notes that it's arrogant and naive for those in Europe to, to adopt an attitude of, well, we can leave those Americans to their own devices. There are big implications for pretending the world doesn't need America. From the current wrangling over the future of NATO to the sustainability of the world order, we've largely benefited from since the end of World War II. But he says there's also a striking similarity between the aftermath of the Great Depression and what followed the financial crisis of 2007 and 2008. See, by 1931, it was clear that many of America's wealthiest had escaped the Depression unscathed. Sound familiar? The New Deal reforms of Franklin Delano Roosevelt in 1933 sought to rectify this injustice. But where have the reforms been since 2008? Instead, a more ruthless form of capitalism has taken hold unchecked. A small group of individuals continue to do extremely well, while the majority languishes. By the way, I would just add one, one little annotation here. When he says a more ruthless form of capitalism... He could also have used the term crony capitalism, and I think it would, it would still hold well. 
Tyler Durden in the Fight Club says, I see all this potential and I see squandering. Damn it, an entire generation pumping gas, waiting tables, slaves with white collars. We're the middle children of history, man. No purpose or place. We have no great war, no great depression. Our great war is a spiritual war. Our great depression is our lives. Now, Jeffries points out uh, the character of Tyler Durden was well-written and deserves our attention. The consequences of an increasingly amoral and unfair and hence unhappy society flailing around a demagnetized moral compass point are horribly tangible and not just in America. Studies indicate that the greatest cause of death in young people under 30 in the developed world is not the abuse of drugs or alcohol, but suicide. Ooh. Take just a moment to think about that. I guarantee no matter where you are, if you're within the sound of my voice, you have probably encountered some pretty somber talk about why are young people killing themselves? And by young people, I don't just mean college students. I mean, down into high school, even junior high. With all the advantages available to them, with all of the material goodness and security that surrounds them. What could drive young people to the point that they'd feel like I'd be better off dead? Jeffrey says the reason for this poor state of mental health are myriad and complex, however, as Hugh McKay, the Australian psychologist and social researcher, argues in his book, The Good Life, happiness has become an industry that is selling us a lie. The current misappropriation of the American dream has fed into this, equating happiness with material gain. And it's increasingly evident that the equation doesn't work. As dissatisfaction soars, populist parties and movements, mostly on the right, are becoming a powerful force in both the United States and in Europe. Democracy itself appears tarnished and suspect. But we can at least click on Amazon.com for same-day delivery or switch on Netflix for instant gratification and escapism. American philosopher William James wrote, We have lost the power of even imagining what the ancient idealization of poverty could have meant. The liberation of material attachments, the unbribed soul. The more athletic trim, in short, the moral fighting shape. Now those words were written at the turn of the 20th century. And the trajectory since then appears worryingly to have been sustained. America needs to remember what the dream originally meant, but more importantly... It needs to get back into moral fighting shape. Okay, that's a phrase I'm going to have to let kind of meander around in my mind throughout today as I go about my business. What does it mean to be in moral fighting shape? Please don't get me wrong. Okay, I'm not a Luddite. I don't want to live in a clothes, in a, a, a you know, one set of hun- homespun clothing and live in a cave and wash my clothes on a rock down by the river. I like all the blessings that uh, that we have and the prosperity that we enjoy. But I'll admit, there's times when I feel like I am totally owned by my stuff. Maybe we'll revisit that. Just the other side of these commercial messages. This is Loving Liberty. We'll be back after this.
Hey, welcome back to Loving Liberty. I'm Brian Hyde. I really would love to get some reaction to to this uh, article about remembering the original meaning of the American dream. And you can call me pretty much toll free from anywhere in the known universe. 801-331-8113 and weigh in. This this really it sticks in my mind because because I've recognized, well, two things, actually. I think there's some legitimacy to the idea that we, we've shifted the focus of the American dream to, hey, it's about acquiring stuff, man. It's about showing how successful you are. And, and you know, I, I fall prey to that as well. I mean, look, I would feel better driving down the road in a Mercedes than I do driving down the road in my Volkswagen. But that Volkswagen's really no slouch. It gets me where I need to go, and it's been extremely reliable. I like to experience Farfignugan. Sue me. Just kidding. The second thing, though, I've noticed is I'm a bit of a pack rat. So you combine great prosperity with pack rat tendencies. And let's just say the prospect of moving. I think I'd I'd rather undergo five simultaneous root canals without anesthetic than have to pack up for another move. Because I remember what the last one was like two years ago. And my wife and I both just sat there and lamented. We, we wrung our hands and, and we wailed. I think we even put on some sackcloth and ashes because there was just so much stuff. And, and the, the kicker, a lot of it is stuff that was just being kept. I don't know why, just, just in case, you know, there's a box of books we haven't opened in 10 years. Or actually, it was more than that. It was more like 13 years since we had moved the previous time. What possible reason do we have for keeping that? Well, there might be something sentimental. I understand. But if you haven't touched something in in a couple of years, five years for that matter, how important can it really be? Now, again, I'm not a full-blown minimalist, and I'm not telling you that you should be as well. But suffice it to say, there are times when I really do feel owned by stuff. I'm not saying that's something that we all need to work on, but for me personally... I think I need to. Something happens when you clear space in your life by getting rid of the clutter or getting rid of the, the things that you've used to, to fill those empty spaces. I try to think of a, of a good example of, of what this looks like, how, how we, we try to substitute something that's missing in our lives with, with things. And I hearken back to a dear friend that I had many years ago in southern Idaho. This was one of my shooting buddies. Uh, his name was Brian. And um, the, the guy was just, he was just a stand-up individual. I, I really loved to go shooting with him. And we went out one time, and, and we were shooting, and he, and he brought out a Colt Python revolver. Now, if you're not a shooter, you may not understand. But uh, the Colt Python revolver, for years, was like the Rolls Royce of handguns. A Colt Python in, in uh, electroless nickel, 357, six-inch barrel. It was, it was a work of art. And I was really excited when he brought it out. I'm like, man, that is, I get to shoot this today? I was so happy I almost forgot the fact that I hadn't brought earplugs. And by the way, I do have permanent hearing loss because of that day. But back to the story, Brian starts telling me about the day he bought that Colt Python. And he was a young man. I don't know that uh, handgun sales were restricted to 21 or older at that time. I know he would have been he would have been right about that age, 20, 21, when he bought that Colt Python. And it took him a long time. I mean, we're talking back in the heyday 
A good Colt Python, we're talking like in the 80s, was $600, $700. It was not cheap. It was a lot of money. And he worked for weeks, maybe months, to get enough money to set aside to buy that. And he went down to the, the sporting goods store and he bought it. And he was so ecstatic. You know, I finally did it. You know, filled out the paperwork. He got the gun. And he walked out the door and he looked at the box in his hand with that elusive, desirable Colt Python. And he said, and it sucked. He says, I sat there looking at it going, okay, now I have it, but I don't feel any better. I'm not a better person. I'm not a happier person. This was supposed to be something great. This was going to be the turning point. Everything is better from this point on. Why? Because I got my Python. I've never forgotten that conversation with him. Partly because I told him, hey, listen, if it's still making you suffer, why don't you just uh, give it to me for 20 bucks? I'll take it off your hands. You can be happy again. He wasn't buying it. But the bigger lesson he was trying to point out, and it it really did take hold in my heart, was that stuff alone isn't enough to make us feel good, to make us whole, to give us a sense of purpose and, and a sense of accomplishment. There's an article up on the Foundation for Economic Education. This is from Catherine Alice. Six stats that show Americans are drowning in stuff they don't need. And by the way, there's a picture of a garage on this that just, uh, well, mine's not quite that bad, but with a little effort, it could be. Catherine Alice says, the other day I discovered a YouTube channel, Wild We Roam, and it depicts a couple who lives a very simple but vibrant life in a van in Europe. No, they don't drive around with their dog solving mysteries, but that was a good guess. They have an incredible video showing how they converted a Mercedes van from 1980 into their home. And Catherine says, when I saw this video, the first thing I thought was, I can never do that. I have too much stuff. It would be very hard for me to consolidate all my clothes and other possessions to fit in a van. And the thought made me realize how much stuff I actually have and how attached I am to it. And I'm not the only one who's too consumeristic to live in a van. Clutter and materialism are a problem for many Americans. You ready for these six statistics? The average American home has 300,000 items. 23% of adults pay late fees on bills because they lose them, meaning they misplace them. Number three, one out of four houses with two-car garages keep so much stuff in it, they can't even fit a car in the garage. Number four, on average, every American throws away over 68 pounds of clothing every year. Number five, the the Americans spend about $1.2 trillion a year on non-essential items. Now, she says the examples are nearly endless. And here's the sixth one for good measure. The average woman has a lot of clothes, but what's even crazier is the amount the average woman actually wears. As Rebecca Keene said, according to a new study by Closet Made, the average American woman has 103 items of clothing in her wardrobe, but she considers 21% to be unwearable, 33% too tight, and 24% too loose. That's according to a survey of 1,000 women. A further 12% of the wardrobe is occupied by new, unworn clothing, leaving just 10% available. 
I don't know about you, but this little pang of guilt just just kind of shuddered through me here as I think about, uh, you know, I don't have I don't have that much clothing. But, yeah, I've hung on to stuff that I haven't worn in a long time. My wife is the same way. And Catherine Ellis says these statistics helped me realize a couple of things. First, I'm not the only one who can't help but buy that book, that uh, candle, water uh, bottle, pair of heels, mug or gadget. But she says, second and more important, these statistics show the economic impact of clutter. Clutter and disorganization can waste time, money, and cause stress. The global economy has made it possible for the vast majority of Americans to be able to afford a vast array array of items. And many of us have, have taken advantage of that fact. But she says, in the process, we've become overwhelmed with stuff. Could you fit all your worldly possessions into a van? I hate to say it, but uh, I couldn't fit all of my worldly possessions two years ago into two 26-foot U-Haul moving vans. There was still literally dumpsters full of stuff that we threw out. Catherine Allis says, I definitely couldn't fit all my possessions into a van, but maybe there's a happy balance somewhere in between van living and extreme hoarding. I don't know about you, but for me, this is this article is like a kick in the seat of the pants and one that I really needed. So thank you, Catherine Allis from the Foundation for Economic Education for putting this up. Um, I've been feeling for some time like, you know what, I really need to tackle my garage. And I think I have found the... uh, the moral wherewithal and and motivation to make that happen. So that's if, if you're looking for me on Saturday, that's probably what I'm going to be doing. Getting stuff cleaned up, getting rid of stuff. And by the way, I don't believe in just junking everything. Well, I don't want it, so I'll throw it away. I love the idea of repurposing it. If there's someone who needs it, and, and with, you know, the whatever they call it, neighborhood garage sales on Facebook and so forth... You can make sure that somebody who actually needs some of that stuff can get acquainted with it or can find it. Hey, we got to take a break. We're going to check news headlines. We'll come back in the next hour, though. We have a lot to talk about. Thanks for joining us on Loving Liberty. Timely, credible, thoughtful discussion without the partisan outrage. This is the Loving Liberty Radio Network. 